0: from the Credit Union National Association, this is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit union people, credit union ideas. I'm Bill Merrick, Deputy Editor for CUNA's Credit Union Magazine. Today's guest is Kristen Soltis Anderson, co-founder of Echelon Insights and author of The Selfie Vote, which examines how today's pollsters use data mining and social media to create insights into consumers' behavior. She's especially interested in the millennial generation and how America's shifting demographics could affect future elections. I recently spoke by phone with Anderson, who will address the 2018 CUNA Governmental Affairs Conference. Can you tell me about Echelon Insights and what you do there?
1: Sure. Uh, Echelon Insights is a hybrid of a polling firm, an analytics firm, and a digital intelligence firm. We uh, launched in the middle of 2014, uh, myself and my business partner, Patrick, trying to merge a bunch of different skill sets from the political world that we thought were valuable to have under the same roof and that could be applied Uh, to corporate clients as well. So I came from the polling world. I had done surveys and focus groups and that sort of thing. And Patrick came from the digital world. He'd been you know, e-campaign director at the RNC, had had worked on the Bush reelect doing digital stuff, one of the first Republican digital strategists. So he and I decided, you know, we each have access to really interesting data streams and understand how to interpret them. But there's no reason why you know, somebody should rely only on a poll to figure out what public opinion looks like. When you can look at all of the data that we're getting from social media, you know, the, the field of analytics was really starting to take off around that time. And he and I had just sat on enough panels at enough conferences and things to realize we were like-minded and thought these skills would go well together. And Echelon has been growing ever since. Um, we're now, uh, you know, we've we've grown our team. We've grown our business In fact, most of what we do is issue-related work for corporations um, and nonprofits who are advocating for certain policy ideas, and we will do research to figure out how to message about them, who the target audience should be, um, and how to explain, in some cases, very complicated uh, policy and government affairs-type items to, uh, to critical audiences. So there has been a big transition to using online polling, and this began... You know, you can go back about a decade and begin to see the rise of Internet polling. Um, but it's really been within the last couple of years that it's gotten significantly more rigorous. Um, there are ways that you can do polling that are fairly cheap and easy and yet still will give you a fairly representative sample. In the political world, it's a to use online polling. Because often in politics, you're looking to call people in a particular geographic area, and it's harder to target people online that way. Um, But I think online research is getting higher and higher quality. And that's why you're seeing news outlets increasingly turning to online polling to either do their media, you know, their big polls or to supplement it. You have NBC working with SurveyMonkey. You have the Economist, working with a company called YouGov, which does, they, I use them a lot for my at my work. Um, you have uh, you have the New York Times, which had for a long time been quite resistant to using online research. I believe they now have some partnerships with uh, a company called Morning Consult. So there are lots of different companies that will provide internet polling that actually do a, a very good job. The irony is, however, that the world of telephone polling is is not dead. And in fact, telephone polling remains very valuable uh, for the work of analytics. So you know, people heard about the analytics world after the 2012 election. You had Barack Obama's team sort of famously using uh, using analytics to target voters very efficiently and effectively. Um, we in order to do a lot of that analytics work. uh People do robocalls. You know, it's not just calling telephones. It's calling landline phones using uh, an auto dialer and a a robotic voice. (laughs) And yet that data, if you get enough of it, you can sort of iron it out and apply statistical techniques on the back end to make it useful, valuable data. So there is a mix of, of trying things in the online space, trying things with analytics, um, that are allowing pollsters like me to to have just more tools available to us to understand what the public is thinking.
0: What sparked your interest in polling?
1: I was originally very interested in doing political communications. So I had uh, come to Washington to take an internship, um, worked at a campaign committee uh, on Capitol Hill, and wanted to go be a press secretary or speechwriter. And it turned out that I was also pretty good with a spreadsheet, uh, and, you know, liked numbers and the quantitative study of politics. I, I liked the idea of being able to test things out and know if something's going to work rather than just going with your gut. And so I got nudged to try the polling world because that really is the intersection of the verbal and the math. Um, you're crafting messages. You have to be creative. You have to figure out how to tell stories effectively, what language people should use. So very verbal, but you've also got the math side of, I've got to interpret all of this data and figure out how to do it rigorously. So I took a a job as sort of the staff assistant uh, at a polling firm when I was fresh out of college, graduated early so that I could move up to Washington and take that job. Um, And within that firm, I spent the next eight years learning the trade and growing my own portfolio uh, of business, building out my own client list, took a little bit of time to uh, then in 2014, write a book about young voters and do a fellowship. And that was the year that then I started uh, Echelon Insights.
0: Can you uh, tell me the premise of the selfie vote and, and what led you to, to write the selfie vote?
1: The selfie vote really began in 2009. I was finishing up my graduate school program at Johns Hopkins. I had been going uh, in the evenings, taking classes at night to get my master's in government. And to conclude the program, I had to write a thesis. And I had been watching the 2008 presidential election with great interest and had noticed that on the one hand, I had a lot of friends who were very interested in politics and had never been before. Um, But at the same time, they were all really trending Democratic. It seemed like uh, they thought the idea of being Republican was just crazy. And so I uh, wanted to figure out, OK, is that just my friends or is this a broader thing? And and is this normal? You know, I would talk to more experienced strategists at the time who would say, oh, don't worry about it. It's, it's totally normal. Young voters are always Democrats. They they turn Republican when they get older. It's fine. Um. We looked at the past data and it showed that it hadn't really always been the case that as recently as the election in 2000, young voters were pretty split between Al Gore and George W. Bush, um, that they broke very slightly for John Kerry, but but not nearly by the margins that Obama won by in 2008. And so that Obama-McCain election was not normal. That was not how young voters normally behaved. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to understand did Republicans have anything to be worried about. So I wrote my thesis about how I thought that this was this youth vote breakaway from the GOP was about more than just Obama and that Republicans should be worried because there wasn't actually a lot of evidence that young people naturally become conservative when they get older. So I wrote this thesis and I, you know, tried to put it out into the universe and get attention for it and um a blog at the time uh by a guy named Mark Blumenthal. It was called Polster.com. He sort of let me take excerpts from this thesis and post them at his blog. And this wound up making its way into the hands of a, a lot of fairly prominent people in Washington. I remember getting a text one night from a friend who'd been watching CNN and I guess James Carville had been on TV and mentioned that he'd read some memo by some Republican pollster named Kristen Soltis. (laughs) You know, so it was, it it was just, you know, I was a a kid in my mid twenties, but I had just written a lot about this topic and I was passionate about it. And so the word started getting out there. Mm -hmm. And then around the time that we had the uh, 2012 election and Republicans lost young voters again by a very big margin, more people started to wake up to the idea that this was a topic worth studying, that this was a big problem for Republicans, and that millennials maybe did represent something unique politically. So I started writing the selfie vote, and I didn't want to just tackle it from a political perspective. I didn't just want to write about what do young voters think about tax cuts or what do young voters think about the Affordable Care Act or things like that. I wanted to dig into what is the millennial mindset? What's our worldview? Um, what are the experiences and the the values that drive us, that that inform our thinking? Um, and then offer advice to sort of anyone wanting to connect with millennials, but in particular, there are pieces targeted at the Republican Party for what they could do to to win my generation back. And the overall premise is that the world is changing very quickly. There's a lot of technological change that influences how we connect with one another. It influences what industries are thriving. We have economic change, uh, increased connection of global markets. Uh, You know, we have uh, changes in terms of culture, whether that's the rising diversity we see in America or changing norms around religion, family, those sorts of things. And these are trends that are are moving very quickly and that millennials really embody. And so my advice to Republicans in the book was rather than fearing those changes, to find ways to embrace some of those changes and to welcome those who do view family in a different way or do um, work in, in new thriving industries to welcome them into the party and to encourage them to apply sort of limited government, uh, personal responsibility, those types of things. You know, theoretically Republican principles to to these problems.
0: One thing I've, I found pretty interesting is that you wrote um, that people's purchasing habits can provide insights into their uh, political leanings. Um, how does that work, and can you provide an example of that?
1: Certainly. So in the book, an example I give comes from my friend Alex Lundry, who had been doing analytics work for the Romney campaign. Uh, I believe this was from 2012. Um, And they were trying to figure out how to target voters who were most likely to support Mitt Romney. Now, in a general election, most of what's driving voters is, you know, what party are you affiliated in? Have you ever voted in a Democratic or Republican primary? There are signals that are sent um, that pretty clearly tell us whether we think you're likely to be Republican or Democratic. But in a Republican primary, it's much less clear. You may know everybody's Republican, but that doesn't Tell you that they're a Rubio Republican or a Romney Republican or a Trump Republican, whatever that looks like. So you have to get more sophisticated about sifting out those signals. The example Alex gave was that he was trying to create a model to use, you know, various pieces of information they knew about voters. So whether it's their gender or their region they're in or their age or their expected income, all of that stuff to predict. What type of voter in New Hampshire is a Romney Republican? And they kept finding that there was this one variable that would make you statistically less likely to be a Mitt Romney supporter, even if holding all other things constant. Um, and that was owning a dog. You know, you can ascertain from someone's purchasing habits if they've gone out and they have purchased a bunch of dog food or they, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, subscribe to a pet magazine or you know, there are all sorts of ways that, especially, you know, credit card companies sort of can aggregate all of this information. And it's not as though the Romney campaign knows that someone is buying, you know, Purina, but, but there is somewhere along the line, you know, one of these big data providers got a, a hint that a certain segment of people all had dogs. And it just so happened to turn out that people with dogs were less likely to be Romney supporters. Uh, the suspicion was that this was because of the story about him putting his dog in a crate on the roof of his car when his oh, family yeah. went on vacation. Um, and so, you know, that, that's just one example we give given in the book. You now, it's it's not always the case that um, these consumer signals are determinative. Most of the time, it's it, the, the predictors are the things you would expect. Someone's gender, race, age, party ID, the, the kind of basics um but if you're really looking to go deep and you are in a 16-way primary or you know you're looking to really split hairs to deeply segment a universe that might be fairly homogenous in other ways knowing that a certain segment of people, you know, ah uh, these are folks that are NRA members but they also own a Prius hmm maybe they're cross pressured maybe they're you know, hunters and outdoorsmen, but maybe that—that that means they'll actually be fairly pro—you uh, know, pro environment, and so maybe I can reach them with an environmental message. I mean, these are the sorts of things that political strategists working with large volumes of data will will try to assess.
0: What lessons can credit unions learn from all of this in terms of developing the right messaging for their targeted groups that they want to serve?
1: Well, I think when it comes to understanding millennials. For anyone in the financial sector, um, I think the biggest thing to to know about millennials is that we are a fairly risk-averse generation and are are afraid of commitments Um, that, you know, perhaps even more so than our parents' or grandparents' generation, you know, we've come of age in an era when a lot of the things that we were told were sort of responsible, safe choices, whether it's, it's responsible to go to college and get a degree and then to get married and then to buy a home and then save for retirement, put that money in the stock market. You know, these were all things that we thought, oh, well, that's what a, a responsible person does. And then we saw the economic collapse. Um, we've seen cost of college skyrocket, uh, folks, you know, having debt but no degree. And suddenly a lot of those things that seemed like the safe bet, we're now questioning it. And so I think it's all about helping your millennial audience uh, have a clear idea of what the risks are inherent in whatever it is they're doing, whether it's buying a home or investing for retirement, but, but also to sort of, you know, help them feel less afraid of making those commitments. Um, you know, I, I think that's piece number one. I think piece number two is understanding our expectations for speed, transparency, and accountability are our, our uh, very high that the millennial generation is extremely diverse racially, um, ethnically. Uh, we, there's, there's a lot going on in our generation, but the one thing that I think unifies us is we're the first generation to come of age in an era where the internet is the norm, is standard. And so for us, you know, the, uh, the idea that, you know, when I buy a product, I should be able to look at a bunch of reviews and see what other people think. Uh, there should be accountability for whether that product is good or not. If I, so transparency, do other people like it? Accountability, if I like it or don't like it, I should be able to have my voice heard. And then speed, if I want to order it, I should be able to snap my fingers and it shows up at my door two days mm-hmm. later. Um, and I think that has permeated not just how we deal in the consumer world, but you know it influences how we view government. Um, an expectation of transparency and accountability um, that's very high and that puts a, a lot of demands on our public officials, I think, for good. Um, but it's those two things, it's the risk aversion and the, the transparency and accountability expectations that are, are important to, to keep in mind.
0: Uh, what, what do you see as some of the weak spots of polling?
1: So back in 2012, when some of the polls were off, and in that year you had the national-level polls missing by a couple of points, sort of giving Mitt Romney more of a chance to win than he actually had, it was pretty clear what had gone wrong in the polls. And that was that we had a lot of voters who didn't have landline phones. They were young. They were voters from communities of color, people who live in urban areas, who were accessible via cell but not landline. And there were just too many voters being called on landlines. So it was easy to diagnose the problem and to prescribe a fix. In 2016, it's much more challenging. There's a perception that the polls missed, but not all of the polls missed. In fact, the national level polls got the election pretty right. The final polling average, I believe, of national polls on Election Day was Hillary Clinton by three. And if you look at the national popular vote, I think it's Hillary Clinton by 2.3 points.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, the the national polls were actually more accurate in 2016 than they had been previously, um but there was this perception that the election was that the polls got it wrong because the forecasts got it wrong and and that was driven by a handful of polls in a handful of swing states so the polls in Pennsylvania were off by enough the polls in Wisconsin were off by enough the polls in Michigan were off by enough that Trump's win there was uh, his chances of winning there were were dramatically underestimated hmm. which meant that for the forecasters it was hard to come up with a way that Trump wins the electoral college and therefore you know we give him a 0% chance of winning the presidency or what have you you know and i think it's the the way we think about those forecasts that really led people to feel so misled by the polls if you talk to folks in our industry we will consistently say that the ballot test is the least interesting reason why you do a poll. That polls are, are in some ways, I think the the most useless thing you can use a poll for is to try to predict an election. What you use a poll for is to figure out what people are thinking and how to persuade them, how to target them. Um, You use it for strategic purposes. Um, And you understand that if I have a poll, and even if it is perfectly conducted. And my poll shows that I'm going to win by two. It is just statistical reality that it could mean that I'm going to lose by two or it could mean I'm going to win by six. Uh, you know, this is just inherent in polling itself. And I think we as an industry have done a bad job of policing how much certainty gets ascribed to those ballot test numbers. Um, again, in 2016, the, the polls on average were pretty, pretty darn close so it it is not clear that there is one singular thing that is broken in polling but rather you've just got a lot more polling going on and a lot more people i think drawing conclusions from those polls with a level of certainty that is unwarranted now in the uh in the election down in alabama what was fascinating and what i actually think was positive is you had polls that were kind of all over the place it wasn't that Quote unquote, the polls were wrong. It's Some polls were very wrong and some polls were very right. Um, you had, I think, Fox News come out with a poll right before Election Day showing Doug Jones winning by 10. So that's clearly not correct. But you also had some other pollsters showing Roy Moore was going to win by nine. Also, clearly not correct. Um, but if you averaged all of the polls together, you should have gone into Election Day with a pretty good idea that this was going to be a close one, that you had a wide range of outcomes, which is what you're going to get when you are dealing in probabilities, maybe a wider range of outcomes than should have been there. Um, but I think it just is, is a good reminder to people that we should be humble about what we can know, cautious about what we claim we can predict with certainty, and a reminder that we should use polls to offer strategic insights about what people are thinking rather than stress out over whether the poll is one or two points off in either direction.
0: So here's just a shot in the dark. Who do you think will be the front runners in the 2020 presidential election? Any predictions? Oh,
1: gosh. (laughs) So I think on the Republican side, I know that there's talk about, oh, is Donald Trump going to get primaried by someone? But I just think it's extremely hard to envision. uh, It's just extremely hard to envision someone successfully unseating Donald Trump. Uh, unless there is some kind of massive economic issue um, or foreign policy crisis where he loses faith in his own party. uh, I I just, I think it's likely Donald Trump will still be the Republican nominee uh, in 2020 on the democratic side. I'm absolutely not making a guess. (laughs) Uh, I suspect it will be someone who can energize their base. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think you know, what's what's odd is that they've the Democrats have seen success in the last few elections by choosing fairly nice white men, um, whether it's Ralph Northam or whether it's Doug Jones. Uh, but I, I just feel like that's unlikely to be who they nominate in the presidential contest when activists at a national level are demanding uh, that the party sort of make up for the, the mistakes that were made during the Clinton campaign uh, that left some folks in the base feeling sort of uninspired, and instead to really pursue uh, someone that will, will fire that base up.
0: I'm sure you've worked with a lot of uh, politicians uh, during your career. Um, what's what's one memorable moment from your polling career that stands out to you?
1: Uh, I think the, one of the most memorable moments for me is when I was conducting some of this research on young voters. Back in twenty thirteen and we did our first series of focus groups after the election and uh we you know were talking to young voters and when you would ask them in you know, what they thought the Republican party stood for i mean it was just this like really unpleasant laundry list of backwards and racists and all of these horrible things. And just having it really dawn on me concretely that, that young voters did not think that my party was living in this century and that this was going to be a, a really tough problem for them to address. Um, so for me, that, that focus group is just sort of seared onto my mind as, uh, as uh, you know, something that I, uh, it, it, it will hard, be hard for me to forget that because that was the moment that it just really came, crystallized for me how big the problem was that Republicans were going to be facing because they had not done anything to repair um, their brand over the last, over the the first four years of Obama's presidency. And they were were running out of time to do so before the 2020 election or 2016 election.
0: And what message do you have for attendees of CUNA's governmental affairs conference?
1: Uh, I think my message would be that, you know, there's this perception out there that millennials don't matter in politics and they don't vote uh, and my message would be that, that that they really do and that you have to understand millennials from a corporate perspective. You have to understand them because of the way they're changing a lot of society's institutions. But also, they really are beginning to vote. There are more millennials eligible to vote than there are baby boomers in places like Alabama and in places, I mean, especially in Virginia. Uh, increased millennial turnout compared to expectations is driving some of these Democratic victories So it is, we are now in an era where millennials seem, they're quite eager to make their voices
0: heard. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play.